This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Available now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all major streaming platforms. Hey, this is Gano Grills, aka Mondo Brown, and right now you are listening to Inside Oz. That's right, you're inside the emerald city so fasten your seatbelt and hold on because it's going to be a bumpy ride mm. sister you do not want to see my anger my anger is massive all encompassing being accused of three bitches disloyal dishonest Disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. If you a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Friday. Friday is the common. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Just want to say a big thank you to Gano Grills for that introduction there. He was really cool about making one, and he also sent me some really cool photos from his archive recently too. So thank you, Gano, for those. So today we're looking back at the penultimate episode of this first block of Series 4 episodes, Series 4, Episode 7, A Town Without Pity. Named after the 1961 film based on Gregor Dorfmeister's 1960 novel Das Urteil, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sonil Nair and Bradford Winters, and was directed by John Miller Turbin, credited here as J. Miller Turbin. Born January 31st, 1961 in Hutchinson County, Texas, John earned his first credits in 1988, working as a second unit director on both Bum Rap and Anna, as well as working as a production associate on Lago Desolado in 1990. Working as a first assistant director throughout the early 90s on films including Dogfight, The Night We Never Met and Household Saints, John's first work on TV saw him work as a first assistant director on nine episodes of NYPD Blue on ABC between 1994 and 1995. John has worked on Oz previously, working as first assistant director on Series 1, Episode 1, The Routine, and returned in Series 2 to work on five more episodes. In 1999, John made his directorial debut on the short film 4AM Open All Night, where he also earned a producer credit and also worked as an assistant director in 1999 on the films The 24-Hour Woman and Simply Irresistible. 
In 2000, John worked as assistant director on the film Passion of Mind, as well as on TV in the ill-fated The Beat, before returning here to direct his first episode of Oz. The episode originally aired on August 23rd, 2000, a day which marked the 10th anniversary of the resolution passing for the reunification of East and West Germany. It was also the day that the Clinton administration released guidelines for federally funded scientists to conduct research on human embryonic stem cells, as well as announcing millions of dollars in relief funds for electricity users in California. Boeing held its first successful launch of its Delta III rocket, and Richard Hatch, a corporate trainer, whatever the hell that is, was crowned the first ever winner of the reality series Survivor, scooping himself a $1 million cash prize in a finale watched by an average of 51.7 million viewers according to Nielsen ratings. Probably won't get the chance to talk about old Richard again on the show, but a little note here, and as Augustus would say, prisoner number 06H242, Richard Hatch. Convicted 2006, three counts of tax evasion. Sentence, 51 months, plus three years of supervised probation. After being released from Celebrity Oz, Richard would serve a further nine months in prison for failing to amend his 2000 and 2001 tax returns. Some big high ruler once said, the business of America is business. I'm happy to report the criminal justice business is booming. With heavy industry headed south, small towns are battling for state contracts to build correctional facilities. Who'd have thunk it? Nice, upstanding citizens begging to have rapists, drug dealers, and murderers right in their own backyard. Kick off with Act 1, in which Augustus quotes some high roller about the business of America being business, and that business in the criminal justice system is booming across the country as heavy industry heads south with small towns battling for state contracts to build new prisons, and mentions about the irony of fine upstanding citizens begging to have rapists, drug dealers, and murderers right in their own backyard. That business quote is a reference to a speech given by President Calvin Coolidge on January 17th, 1925 to the American Society of Newspaper Editors, the President addressing the society with, After all, the chief business of the American people is business. They are profoundly concerned with producing, buying, selling, investing, and prospering the world. So not verbatim what Augustus says here, but the sentiments are the same. The episode gets underway proper, with Quern's looking down on the kitchen from his office, much like how McManus used to, as Saeed asks Ryan about how Cyril is recovering in the hospital. Ryan tells Saeed that Cyril is fully recovered from the overdose, but is being kept in for observation. As Saeed, I'm pretty sure, says praise Allah, although it says praise the Lord on the DVD subtitles. Saeed heads off having received his meal of, well, your guess is as good as mine, I'm not really sure what it's meant to be. As Schillinger is up next, telling Ryan that he's sorry to hear about his girlfriend. Robson chimes in asking, complete with slightly racist accent, whether or not Ryan is involved romantically with Adebisi. But Schillinger mentions it being Gloria and how she's taken a leave of absence after nearly choking to death when Ryan came in her mouth. Ryan snaps and throws a tray of food at Schillinger, which prompts both he and Robson to vault over the counter and fight with Ryan. A push leads to a shove, which leads to not much else, as all three men are restrained. Adebisi even getting in the middle of everything while maintaining a tight grip on a huge pot, as Ryan is restrained by some new CO we've never seen before, with Claire telling him to keep his mouth shut. Ryan tells her, eat me, you goddamn clit, which is one of the more nonsensical insults that I think I've ever heard, as Claire smacks Ryan in the gut and escorts him away herself, as Schillinger is also led away. 
a real action packed opening to this one with this fight, and this is the first time in a while that we've seen some interaction between Ryan and Schillinger, who of course have history with each other from when Cyril was in Unit B when he first arrived in Oz. Watching this scene back, it's interesting how nobody has used Ryan's seemingly obvious infatuation with Gloria against him before, as it's obviously such a trigger for him. If it can be seen by someone like Schillinger, who doesn't spend entire days with Ryan at any one time, then the chances are that everyone else has seen it too, and after witnessing this fight they now know exactly what button to press to get Ryan off his game. Couple of little touches that I really liked in this scene were Adebisi and his big pot just getting in the way of everything, but I also really liked Quern's mirroring McManus and looking down on things from on high, kind of giving the implication that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So Ryan is bundled into the Oz toilets and trips over onto the floor as Claire tells him to stay down, pressing a nightstick against Ryan's chest. A moment's silence ends with a smile crossing Ryan's face as he tells Claire to blow him. Claire reciprocates with a smile of her own before asking him, again? as the two of them then proceed to wear the faces off of each other and Claire loosens Ryan's trousers and bobs her head down, Ryan instantly moaning and groaning like an idiot. So yeah, apparently these two have been fucking each other, and we'll talk more about this in a future episode, but this just seems to come completely out of left field for me, and I'm not too sure about how I feel about it just yet. I'm also trying to remember when we last saw these toilet cubicles, as I think this may be the first time we've seen them since the first episode, when Ryan and Dino got into a fight with each other. There was a scene of McManus and Devlin in the bathroom shortly after the graduation ceremony in Series 2, but I don't know if that was the same bathroom as what we see here. Over in protective custody, Nikolai finishes up his meeting with his rabbi, who he asked to visit with in the previous episode, as Quernes enters and asks Nikolai if he's feeling better and I liked how Quernes gave a respectful nod to the rabbi. Nikolai tells Quernes that a dead man needs to cover all of his options, and says that sometime after he's sent back to M-City, Ryan will have found a way to kill him, whether that takes a day, or maybe even a week. Quernes tells Nikolai that he likes him, although he admits that he doesn't know why, and says that he can let Nikolai stay in protective custody for a few more days, but Nikolai questions what's the point in doing so, and says that death is inevitable. But Quernes tells Nikolai not to be so sure, and that he plans to speak with Ryan, who he meets up with in his office. You know, I'm trying to eliminate violence from M-City. And doing an amazing job, sir. Cut the crap! When Stanislavski returns, if anything happens to him, I mean anything, he cuts himself shaving, I'm holding you responsible. Hoyt's got the hospital, Stanislavski, not me. I don't care. You're responsible. Understand? Uh-huh. If Nikolai gets hurt when he gets back to M-City, my ass is grass. Right. Now get lost. Back in the toilets, Ryan and Claire are fucking just out in the open where anyone could walk in and catch them, Ryan asking her how much she loves him and whether it's enough to do anything that he asks. Claire tells him yes as they go back to having some sexy time, as we dissolve to Ryan looking at his newspaper clippings about the time Gloria led the local blood drive. He hears a knock on his pod glass, so quickly puts the clipping away, which is a good idea as it was Claire knocking on the glass having brought Cyril back from the hospital. Ryan gives his brother a big hug as Claire says that that certain someone you asked to inquire about is coming back to M-City tomorrow. That person, of course, is Nikolai, and Ryan seems a little agitated at this news, seemingly thinking that he had more time to formulate a plan. Claire, however, informs Ryan that Nikolai has asked Querns for a favour, and has requested the chance to have a bath, Nikolai having previously mentioned about wanting to take a nice hot soak in the tub, 
Ryan says that there are no bathtubs in ours, but according to Claire, and seemingly by pure coincidence, it just so happens that the hospital's therapy room does have one, completely skirting over the fact that the hospital has a conveniently placed therapy room, something which has never been mentioned before, and I don't think ever gets mentioned again. Ryan tells Claire that that's perfect and that she knows what to do as she leaves, as Ryan goes and gives Cyril another hug. Cut to the conveniently placed hospital therapy room where Nikolai is enjoying the bubbles as a CO stands guard. Outside, I should add, he's not just standing there watching Nikolai have a bath. Claire approaches the room and says that she's there to take Nikolai back to M-City. She closes the door behind her and the other CO just leaves for some reason, and she asks Nikolai if he's nearly finished but Nikolai just wants five more minutes, saying that he's enjoying himself too much. Claire bets that she can make those few minutes all the more enjoyable, and reaches underneath the bubbles and starts to wank Nikolai off, Nikolai indeed enjoying the experience. A mere six seconds later, Nikolai has shot his load, but Claire doesn't seem too bothered, Nikolai saying that he never had anything like that happen to him in the gulag. As Claire dries her hand and says that all men are easily satisfied with no idea about how to pleasure a woman, she plugs a hairdryer into the plug socket and says that Ryan is a real pleaser, as she hands Nikolai a small token of Ryan's affection, giving Nikolai a rubber ducky. Nikolai, enjoying the squeaking noise much like how a small child or a dog does, fails to notice that Claire now has the hand dryer in her hand, and before he can do anything she throws the appliance into the water, sparks flying as Nikolai convulses and his eyes roll backwards. Claire opens the door where we see that the other CO has returned and she tells him to call a medic and that she thinks Nikolai is dead, which this CO does without asking any sort of question about how Nikolai is suddenly dead when Claire was the only other person in the room. So Nikolai here takes roughly 120 volts of electricity from this hairdryer. When the skin is wet, or even if it's just slightly damaged, resistance can fall by as much as 100 times the normal level than when it's dry. This is why in this situation here a person is almost certain to die, while if you were to grab the terminal of a 12 volt car battery with a dry hand you wouldn't suffer a meaningful shock. And just for the record, I am not suggesting that you go and grab a car battery in order to test that, and most definitely do not go dropping electrical appliances into the bath. Just take my word for it, don't go and Nikolai yourself. Back in M-City, Quans is walking through, passing not only Boost Malis, who seems very proud to have beaten Augustus at whatever card game they're playing, but also tries to walk past Ryan, but Ryan doesn't miss the chance to tell Quans that he's heard about what happened to Nikolai, and describes Nikolai dying before getting back to M-City as being weird. Quans doesn't have a whole lot to say before heading off, he knows full well that Ryan is behind this in some way, something which Ryan makes pretty obvious by mentioning it. But as was his in doing in the case of the elusive cell phone, he doesn't have the evidence to prove Ryan's involvement, so it looks as though he's going to have to let this one go. Claire and Ryan exchange glances and winks as Cyril looks on confused about the whole thing, as we fade to black to close the scene. I'll be totally honest with you on this. I didn't like this one bit. While I used to think that he seemed to be nothing more than a bullshit artist when he first came onto the show, I've come to really like Nikolai as a character especially for the way that he's been able to stay one step ahead of Ryan throughout their feud. Nikolai dying wasn't a surprise, I knew that this was how he died and that this was coming, but the way in which it happened just didn't sit right, but that could be in part due to the reason for Philip Kasnoff leaving the show. Long story short is that Philip had signed on to be part of Strong Medicine, a new show on the Lifetime Network, 
and one which not only had a more demanding production schedule due to the number of episodes per series, but also one which was shot in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for its pilot, with production then moving to both Culver City and Los Angeles in California when it went to series. The show had debuted on Lifetime on July 23rd, 2000, less than two weeks after Oz's Series 4 premiere, which ultimately meant that Philip had to commit to one show or the other, and with the foreshadowing of the rubber duck in a previous episode, as well as the mentioning of Nikolai's desire to take a hot bath, Philip was afforded the opportunity to go and do something else, something which Tom Fontana always allowed anyone on the show to do, whether that was appearing on another TV show, or on stage, or even in film, something which we'll talk about again soon. It's a shame that Philip had to leave the show, as, like I said, I've really come to like Nikolai, and I still feel as though there was plenty of mileage left in this storyline between Nikolai and Ryan. And with the Series 4 extension, which we'll talk about in the future, had he been able to stay on the show, you could have continued this storyline into that block of episodes, with Nikolai perhaps managing to evade being killed by someone on Ryan's orders, or by having Ryan having to resort to desperate measures and killing Nikolai himself, something which he often tries to avoid doing. Another angle that could have been explored would have been to have had Nikolai transferred out of M-City and into Unit B. With the number of white inmates in M-City ever decreasing, something which we'll come back to later in this episode, Nikolai going to Unit B would have put him in a situation where he was housed in the same unit as Schillinger and the other members of the Brotherhood. In his most desperate act yet, you had the potential story of Ryan asking Schillinger, a man who he hates to his absolute core, to kill Nikolai on his behalf. Now, I can't imagine Schillinger, being an American white supremacist Nazi and all, would have needed much convincing in order to murder a Russian Jew. But in doing so, you would have essentially transferred the feud from Nikolai over to Schillinger, with Schillinger holding Ryan having to come to him to commit murder over Ryan's head. Who could Ryan turn to and form an alliance with to have Schillinger taken out in that situation? Well, the most obvious answer is Beecher, both men having legitimate reasons to want to have Schillinger killed. Beecher himself having said that his rivalry with Schillinger will only end when one of them is dead. Let me just be clear, this isn't me trying to rewrite the show in some sort of ultimate example of fan fiction. It's more a frustration that we've had this build to Nikolai returning to M-City to renew this rivalry with Ryan, only to have it abruptly ended due to outside circumstances, as well as being ended through a series of convenient plot twists rather than a logical conclusion. I just don't feel that this storyline had the payoff that it deserved. Nikolai has proven himself to be Ryan's equal in terms of cunning on a number of occasions. His exit warranted something more than being in protective custody, to then being gone from the show entirely all of a sudden. We fade back up on Death Row, where Mark is continuing to work away on his wall portrait, clearly very pleased with his work as he tells Picasso to bend over. Schillinger makes his way through the unit delivering the mail, and says that the portrait is coming along real nice, with Mark saying that it's a 21st century masterpiece, and that it belongs in the Louvre. Schillinger gives him a look that reflects what we're all thinking, something along the lines of, well, I wouldn't go that far, and continues on his way around with the mail, dropping Moses' letters on the floor of his cell, which gets a bit of back and forth between the two of them as Schillinger heads out. As he leaves, Leroy makes his way around with the lunch trays for the day, serving up another nutritious serving of chicken nuggets. Moses asking whether or not the guys know how to shake and bake anything else, but apparently the kitchen has state guidelines to follow, so Moses better learn to get used to it. Leroy makes his way across to Mark's cell, only this time he's the one dropping something on the cell floor, and we get a similar back and forth between Leroy and Mark to what Moses and Schillinger had moments ago. 
A good touch having that here showing that the racial tensions are not confined entirely to M-City, it's actually spreading to other units now. In all fairness, the racial tension has always been there to some degree, but with the moving and shaking going on in M-City, it's becoming more noticeable in other parts of the prison now as well. Leroy heads out as Lepresti makes his way round to Moses' cell, telling him to get ready for a meeting with his lawyer. Mark asking whether or not Moses is still trying to appeal his death sentence and calling him... well, let's not get into that right now. Mark says that Moses is never going to be let off. Moses telling him that no one's asking Mark for his opinion. And even Lepresti gets in on the action, telling Mark to give his mouth a rest. Cut to the visiting room where Moses meets with his lawyer, Dawn, played by Angela Bullock. Born July 5th, 1956 in Harlem, New York and raised in Brooklyn, Angela attended George Gerswin Junior High School and the LaGuardia High School of Music and Arts before graduating with a BA in Music and Liberal Arts from Hunter College. After attending the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, Angela made her TV acting debut in 1995, appearing in the fifth season of Law & Order, as well as appearing on As the World Turns towards the end of the year. Angela would make her film debut in 1998, appearing in Pants on Fire, and the following year received credits for the movies Personals, Final Rise and Wiry Spindle, as well as returning to TV to appear in the debut episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Angela would appear on the show again towards the end of its debut season in a different role, before appearing here on ours. Dawn cuts straight to the chase with Moses, telling him that Judge Fee has denied their appeal. Moses taking the news about as well as you would expect, saying the word shit five times before kicking a chair. Moses asks Dawn what happens next, with Dawn saying that they can go to the Supreme Court and appeal the court's decision. Moses asks how long that's likely to take, with Dawn saying that with the current caseload he's looking at a year at the very least. Moses is understandably upset, telling Dawn that he can hardly take another day up on death row, never mind another year, and asks if there's any way that she can speed up the process. But Dawn doesn't even know if her case will be heard, saying that Chief Justice Ginther, who we're told was appointed by Devlin, tends to turn a deaf ear to anything he considers as being soft on crime. Moses fails to see the bright side of things, saying that Dawn is essentially telling him that they're fucked, but Dawn says that time may be on their side and informs Moses of a rumour about Ginther having prostate cancer, and that should he die or retire, then a new Chief Justice may look at not only their case, but the death penalty as a whole differently, and in the meantime Moses is alive for at least another year, telling him to make the best of a bad situation. Back on death row later in the day, Mark continues to paint away, but he's also talking to Moses and using a bunch of words from his big book of racial slurs. As he taunts Moses with a multitude of disgusting terms, Moses pulls out a pick from inside his sling, presumably keeping it there should he ever decide to try and take out Lepresti when they go walking about, but I've no idea where he's actually got this from. There's always the possibility that he's had it delivered to his cell along with one of his meals, but I don't think we get a definite answer to that. Much like Andy Dufresne before him, Moses picks away at the concrete wall, pulling segments of it away as we fade to black to close out Act 1. And I'll just say now, this clip features those horrible racial slurs from Mark, so consider yourself warned. Hey, Dayel, you know how I'm always calling you black boy? Well, while you were downstairs with your legal beagle, I thought, shit, there's a whole bunch of other names I can use. Nigger, of course. Or coon. Jigaboo. Spearchucker, Schwarzer, Moulinian. But I settled on Negro. Negro! 
It's got a kind of simplicity. Negro is the Spanish word for black, so Negro. 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 Who gets underway with the crime flashback of Eli Zabitz, in which we see him working as a chef's assistant. But his cooking obviously isn't up to the chef's lofty standards, as he's giving Eli a right earful. The chef heads off to take a phone call, as Eli, not taking being spoken to like that very well at all, picks up his frying pan of hot oil and heads over to him, throwing the searing hot oil all over the chef's chest and midsection. Eli calls the chef a crybaby as he rolls around on the floor in pain, as we flash cut to Eli holding his information placard with Augustus giving the details of his conviction, Eli having been convicted of aggravated assault and given a nine-year sentence, up for parole in six. Ordinarily, when we get these crime flashbacks, I introduce the actor playing the character, but we already did that with David Johansson a few episodes back, so I won't go over all ground here. Instead, we go to the library where Keller approaches Eli, Keller whispers in his ear to make Eli know that he's there, and I've never seen someone move as quick as what Eli does here. Usain Bolt would struggle to move this quick. Eli tries to get away from Keller, saying that he has to be somewhere, but Keller pulls him back down to his seat and tells Eli that he isn't going anywhere. Keller asks how Eli's daughter's teeth are, every one of them now a shiny pearl apparently, as Keller tells Eli that he's happy that he was able to provide for her with some dental care before he dies. Thinking that Keller is going to murder him right there and then, Eli raises his voice and again tries to get away, but Keller brings him back down once again and tells him to shut the fuck up. Keller knows that it was Eli that told Beecher that it was him that killed Gary, Eli protesting his innocence saying that it was Schellinger that made him do it, as Keller shushes Eli and tells him that regardless of that, Eli will be joining his ancestors very soon. Eli asks a fair question, asking that if Keller plans to kill him, then why is he telling him in advance? With Keller telling him that it's so that Eli can get his affairs in order, as well as wanting to watch him sweat a little. Eli finally manages to get away from Keller and heads to speak with Schillinger over in Unit B, where Schillinger is playing pool for a change. Eli tells Schillinger that he has to protect him, and that if he doesn't, he'll go blabbing about the kidnapping and how Schillinger paid for him to lie to Beecher. Schillinger tells Eli to lower his voice as we get a shot of McManus sat in the Unit B office with the door ever so slightly open. Apparently McManus fails to hear this, despite this being closer to him than the inmate that was getting raped a couple of episodes back. Blaming Eli for ruining his concentration, Schillinger fluffs his shot, but reassures Eli that he'll protect him from Keller and tells him to buzz off as he complains to Robson about how he thought the Jews were supposed to be tough. But according to Robson, that's just the Israelis. Schillinger gives Robson the order to kill Eli, but most importantly, he's taken his botched shot again, as we cut to the office supply room where Eli is thumbing some sort of machine as Keller enters. Keller says that this isn't a safe place, and that he even got stabbed there once before, as he brandishes a big knife in Eli's direction. Eli begs Keller not to kill him, and even tries to fend him off with a cart full of boxes and files, as Robson enters the room from the other side holding a pair of scissors. With his confidence restored, Eli tells Robson to kill Keller, but Robson tells Eli that Schillinger has given the order to have Eli killed. Keller tells Robson that this is his kill, but Robson tells Keller to take a walk, as he's determined to carry out Schillinger's order. Overcome with fear, Eli pleads with both men for mercy before grabbing his chest and collapsing to the ground in a very pantomime fashion. Please! Please don't kill me! Please! 
Neither Kellen nor Robson can believe their look as they give each other a glance. Keller checks for any sign of life by giving Eli a little shove with his foot, as both men agree to leave the other one be and go their separate ways. Robson heads back to his cell to give Schillinger the news, Schillinger laughing at the fact that Eli just dropped dead and that they're now in the clear, and cracks wise about having warned him about eating red meat as the scene closes. The comedy on the show can be a bit hit and miss at times, but this was really good, even if it was a little nonsensical. Obviously both men have their own reasons for wanting to kill Eli, but I think Robson looks a little bit stupid for not just letting Keller have this one. Of course, Robson wants to carry out Schillinger's order, he's a loyal soldier, no doubt about that. But if someone else is willing to do the deed, wouldn't you just let them? If this were to ever get found out, if Robson lets Keller do the killing, then it's Keller who would be the one being investigated for it, not Robson. So why would you put yourself in that position to begin with? Then again, that's probably looking further into it than what it actually needs, and this story can at least now move on with the main players all still involved, with the minor character of Eli having served his purpose. And his death occurring how it did allows for everyone to still be around and not having killed him rather than committing a murder and simply getting away with it. Over in M-City, Saeed is making his way through the unit when he passes the laundry room and notices, with a little help from Ryan, that Beecher is making use of the gap between the washing machine and the laundry room wall to make out with some dude who we've never seen before. But this character is listed as either Nate Sheeman or Nate Shemin, not sure on the pronunciation of that, and unfortunately I can't find a name for the actor that played him. This is one of two appearances for the character, and we will see him again in the next episode in a very memorable moment, but more on that next time. As Beecher tries to take things further by undoing his belt buckle, Saeed breaks it up using his best angry voice, Nate making his exit so that Saeed and Beecher can discuss the matter. Saeed reminds Beecher of his previous addictions, saying that first it was the alcohol and then it was the heroin, and says that this new obsession of his is the worst and most dangerous. Beecher just ignores Saeed by folding his washing, acting all aloof to the entire situation. Grabbing Beecher by the collar, Saeed says that he is talking to him and even calls Beecher by his first name, something which rarely happens to certain characters on the show, but something which elevates the seriousness being portrayed. Beecher, however, jerks about liking it when Saeed is rough and even lunges forward with his tongue out. Not that he was actually trying to make out with Saeed, more playing on Saeed's beliefs. Saeed, with his best insult on the show so far, calls Beecher a slut who'll sleep with anyone and asks how that makes him feel, doubting that it's to make himself feel better. Beecher tells him that it makes him feel worse, if anything, and when Saeed asks why does he do it if that's the case, he explains that at least that way he's feeling something. Of course, he would prefer to be happy, but in a pinch he'll go with the self-hate. Saeed begs Beecher not to hate himself, but Beecher says that his son is dead because of him, his daughter is a mess because of him, and Keller... Well, he doesn't even know where to begin with Keller, because Keller doesn't love him. But at least his new detergent is working out and really getting his whites clean, so at least he's got that going for him. A good scene between these two, Beecher and Saeed have had a mostly good relationship over the last couple of series, with Saeed being one of the few inmates to still really be there for Beecher in his seemingly many hours of need. Beecher still has loose friendships with certain inmates, but he's becoming more and more withdrawn from them but Saeed is still there trying to be something of a help. Whether that's purely down to it being Beecher, or because he feels he needs to be attempting to fix something, 
Whether that's parts of the legal system or a person's well-being, that's open for debate. But the friendship between these two is still a strong part of the show. Over in the gym, Keller is working out when Ray comes to speak with him about Beecher. But Keller wants to focus on his workout, saying that he only gets 30 minutes gym time and he doesn't want Ray eating into it. In a rare moment of Ray raising his voice, he asks Keller to hear him out and describes how Beecher is dying inside, something which Keller says isn't on him. Ray insists that he isn't blaming Keller, merely asking for his help due to his and Beecher's past relationship, which he sheepishly describes as being intimate. Playing off of Ray's obvious awkwardness, Keller tells him, come on, you can say it, we fucked each other up the arse, in the mouth, but Ray says that had nothing to do with it and that they loved each other, and that while that might all be over with now, if Keller has any feelings for Beecher, any real feelings, he doesn't believe that Keller would just sit by and watch Beecher continue to spiral. Keller reminds Ray that Beecher tried to kill him, as we get a flashback to the most recent one of those occurrences using a lovely green colour filter, and says that the relationship started in brutality, and that's how it's now ended, and that love was the smallest part of it. Ray continues to follow Keller around the gym, saying that he doesn't believe that Keller feels that way as Keller asks Ray about where he lives, Ray answering that he lives in the rectory at St. Margaret's, which could be referring to St. Margaret's of Contona Church in the Bronx. Keller asks about how only men live there, and how Ray and the other men share common experiences, as well as a common belief and accept others' eccentricities and flaws, even if one of those eccentricities may be unacceptable, like when one priest wants to fuck another. Ray gives a great, oh, Keller, but Keller just wants Ray to extend the same courtesy of hearing him out like how Ray asked him to begin with. Unless, of course, Keller is hitting too close to home, and he asks whether or not Ray has ever fucked another priest, Ray, of course, denying such a thing. Keller pushes the issue further, asking if Ray has ever wanted to. Ray once again, but more firmly this time, telling him no as Keller continues on, asking about one man seeing another man's tight little ass. Ray is wise to what Keller is doing though, but Keller cuts him off saying that Ray wants him to do the honourable thing, but that they're in Oz, a place where other rules don't apply, and that according to the code they have in the prison, he isn't expected to save Beecher. Ray says that it only takes one man to change the way things are, but Keller insists that he isn't that man, and leaves the gym as the scene closes. Again, another really good scene and another good one between BD and Chris Maloney. Ray was showing more confidence here than what we've seen of him in past episodes, showing that he is wise to Keller's methods now and that he can't be manipulated, something which Keller is very reliant upon to get what he wants. He's still a little awkward whenever the issue of sex arises, but nowhere near the levels that he was at the start of the show, once again showing that improved confidence. We also got another allusion to Ray's somewhat mysterious backstory regarding his possible homosexuality, but I think this went some way to disproving those theories in how firm he was in his answers with Keller. We get an Augustus vignette saying that while 7 out of 10 inmates are from cities, 90% of prisons are out in rural areas mentioning that maybe the thinking for that is that the surroundings will have a calming effect. It plays out with Augustus in the foreground while a man and woman, recreating the couple from Grant Wood's American Gothic, stand behind him as inmates menacingly approach them from the rear, as Augustus says that out in the wild, things only get wilder, the vignette ending on the sound of a howling wolf. Beecher is called to meet with Ray and Pete in her office, with Ray saying that he has some bad news. Beecher sarcastically says that it's a change to have some of that, as Ray explains that the kidnapping charges against Hank have been dropped due to a technicality, 
Apparently some procedure wasn't followed when the arrest was made, so the judges dismissed the case entirely and let Hank go free. Pete can't even find the words to comfort Beecher in any way, the latest in a number of setbacks for him, as Beecher asks Ray what happens now. But fortunately, that's it, there's nothing else to actually happen. Ray's just here to deliver the bad news. Beecher gets up to leave, as Pete asks him if he wants to stay and talk about things. But Beecher basically says, what's the point? If there's nothing to be done, then there's nothing to talk about. Trying to suggest something, anything, to get Beecher to open up somewhat, Pete suggests that he might want to talk about his anger. But Beecher tells her that she doesn't want to see his anger, and that it's all-encompassing. Pete tells Beecher that she isn't afraid, which prompts him to walk over to her, addressing her directly, and asks her where the fuck has she been throughout all of this shit, breaking the Cardinal Law's rule of not swearing at nuns. Clearly a proponent of this rule, Ray tries to settle Beecher down, but Pete tells Ray to let Beecher say his piece. Tobias, aren't you going to stay and talk about this? If there's nothing to be done, what is there to talk about? Your anger. Sister, you do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. I'm not afraid. Fine. Where the fuck have you been during all this shit? Tobias. What? Let him talk. I thought you actually cared, but only if it doesn't get in the way of your own fucking bullshit. You are nothing but a selfish cunt. Now can I go? Yes, but think about something. There's only one person who really matters in all of this, and it's your daughter, Holly. Holly needs your strength. She needs her father! As Beecher leaves, Pete tells him to think about his daughter, and how she's the only person who matters in all of this, and that she needs her father more than ever, Pete's voice cracking as Beecher storms away. All I can say about this scene is that everyone played their part really well. Beecher has seemingly lost all hope and can barely even muster the energy to get angry anymore, while Pete is struggling to find any way of being able to help him, be that as a psychiatrist or even just whatever constitutes being a friend, with Ray doing his best to be supportive to both of them while also being the bearer of bad news. In storyline terms, it's just a miserable scene all round. No one has anything positive to take away from it, but all three of BD, Rita and Lee played their roles really well. Schillinger heads down to the visiting room where Hank has come to visit him, as well as to chat up a young black woman, which his dad seems obviously thrilled about. Hank greets him with a, Yo dad! Something which Schillinger asks him about in a strangely restrained for him sort of way, as Hank explains about how he was shitting his pants when he was arrested and thought he was going to go down. They sit down as Schillinger tells Hank that the authorities can't touch him, but the topic quickly turns to Hank asking for more money and that he's thinking of heading down to Miami for a while perhaps to let this whole kidnapping thing blow over. Probably gonna want to take something a little lighter to wear down in Florida though. That denim jacket over a hoodie ensemble is not an outfit for the Sunshine State. Schillinger says that he was hoping that they'd be able to spend some time together, but he eventually agrees to give Hank some cash. Hank saying that they'll do the father-son thing when he gets back. Cut back to Pete's office where she's meeting with Beecher once again saying that she and Leo have arranged for Beecher to have visits with his daughter three times a week, saying that they need the time together and that Beecher needs the time to heal. As Pete is saying this, Schillinger heads down with a mail cart to drop off the letters, but upon seeing his enemy, Beecher leaps out of his chair and attacks Schillinger, 
with both men ending up on the ground. Pete calls for help as a CO breaks up the two of them and Beecher is escorted back to M-City, shouting back at Schillinger that he's going to kill him, as Schillinger continues to stoke the fire saying that Beecher must have heard the good news about Hank. Beecher calls Schillinger a cocksucker a couple of more times as he's led away, as Schillinger turns to Pete saying that Beecher has quite a temper, before heading off with his mail cart, Pete's face saying it all as she channels her disgust. Over in M-City, a desperate Beecher heads up to Chucky's pod to ask a favour, but his path is blocked by Don, who isn't just going to let him in unless Chucky allows it. While he checks to see if Chucky is in a chatty mood, Beecher gets to hang out for a bit with Mario Seggio, played by Todd Ettelson, who's actually been on the show since the beginning, but has been very much a background character during that time. This is probably his most meaningful contribution to the show so far, which really isn't saying much. Finding anything to speak about and break the tension, Beecher compliments Mario on his shirt, a lovely black, red and white polo shirt affair, before being allowed in to speak with Chucky. Mr. Pacamo, thank you for seeing me. I have to admit, I'm intrigued. You and me and exactly Paisans. I need you to arrange something. Drugs. Oh. Two of my children were kidnapped. My son Gary was killed. Yeah, I heard. Children's son Hank did it, but the bastard got off on a legal technicality. That sucks. He's out free. My son lies rotting in the ground. I want Hank Schillinger dead. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you asking me to set up the hit? Yes. Well, how do I know this isn't some kind of uh, sting operation? You working with the hacks to uh, fuck me over? The only proof I have is this. Well, you're taking care of Hank. I'm gonna kill his father. Okay, you got a deal. A thousand for me, a thousand for the job, cash. The two men shake hands to cement the deal as Saeed watches on from his pod. Saeed heads down to Beecher's pod to talk with him ahead of Beecher's meeting with his daughter, their first since the kidnapping. Saeed says that it will do both of them some good and also mentions that he saw Beecher talking with Chucky and that it doesn't take a rose cutter to figure out what's in play. I've got absolutely no idea what Saeed means by that. That's a saying that I've never heard before in my life. I assume it's something to do with being precise, or with arranging, or something along those lines. But nothing came back when I searched for it in Google either, although I did find a number of cutters that I could use if I ever decided to do some baking with fondant icing, so, you know, not a total loss. Saeed flat out asks if Beecher is planning to have Hank killed, noting Beecher's silence by asking whether or not he's going to deny it. Beecher looks towards Saeed, but remains silent. As Saeed seems unsettled and mentions about how Beecher and Schillinger have both killed a child of the other, and asks when the madness is going to end, Beecher responding that it will only end once he kills Schillinger. Saeed asks what use will Beecher be to his daughter once he winds up on death row, but Beecher asks what good is he to her now as he leaves for his visit with Holly. He heads down to the room that can be the visiting room or the nursery room depending on what the story requires, as he gives Holly a big hug as the shot tries its best to make us a bit dizzy by going around them a few times. The scene closes with grainy flashbacks to when Beecher met with his two children previously, as well as when he attended Gary's funeral, 
along with a zoom-in grainy flashback on Andrew Schillinger's dead corpse and Schillinger meeting with Hank. Later in the day, Beecher meets back up with Saeed in M-City and seeks his counsel, saying that he loves his daughter and only wants what's best for her, and that she shouldn't have to carry the weight of his mistakes before heading down to speak with Chucky again to close out Act 2. Excuse me, Mr. Pancamo. Hey, Beecher. Thanks for the prompt payment. I wish others lived by your example. Look, I um, I have thought it over and I've changed my mind. I want to call off the hit on Hank Schillinger. That's fine. Except for one little thing. You're too late. He's dead? Bullet right through the brain. Oh, shit. But don't worry. You're never going to find a body. Never in a million years. Hank Schillinger has simply disappeared. Act 3 then gets underway with the latest of our Rebido Buffer segments, which sees Officer Mustache releasing him from the hole and taking him back to MC to meet with Querns. Apparently, since Querns took control, violence has decreased in MC by 92%, a figure that would be higher were it not for Rebido trying to murder Boost Mallets. Rebido is very apologetic to Querns and assures him that nothing like that will ever happen again. Querns telling him that if it does, then Rebido is off to Gen Pop saying that they'll eat his ass for lunch. Quenz dismisses Rebido from the office, Rebido moving off very slowly as he's then escorted back to his pod, receiving jeers along the way as well as Morales asking whether or not he feels any better, and Adebisi jokingly warning him to watch out for Boosmala's. Rebido enters his and Boosmala's pod, Boosmala's assuming a fighting stance telling Rebido that if he comes at him, he's ready to go down fighting. Rebido, however, apologises, much more sincerely than last time, and tells Boosmalis that he doesn't know what came over him, and describes feeling as though he was possessed. He asks for Boosmalis' forgiveness and extends his hand in friendship, but Boosmalis is a little reluctant to accept the offer, which is understandable. Rebido asks Boosmalis to please shake his hand, but he then clasps the top of his head and begins to moan in agony, falling to the floor and saying to whatever this is to stop talking. Cut to later in the day with Quans entering M-City where Boosmalis is pacing back and forth, waiting for an update on Rebido. Quans informs Boosmalis that Rebido has been diagnosed with a brain tumour and has been sent to Benchley Memorial for emergency surgery. Boosmalis asks whether or not he can see Rebido before he leaves, but Quans tells him no. Boosmalis explains about Rebido wanting him to shake his hand and asks again to see his friend, but Quans again denies his request. Over in the hospital, Rebido is collected by paramedics, the one with the dialogue being played by Oliver Solomon. As the paramedics move Rebido out of his bed and onto a stretcher, Rebido seems confused and tells them to stop and asks to be left alone. He also says that he wants someone to go with him, saying that he doesn't know who the paramedic is. Rebido is wheeled out of the ward, calling out for Gloria and then Boost Malice, and finally calling out for his mum, which, if him calling out for Boost Malice doesn't get you... The calling out for his mum will, that was utterly heartbreaking to hear. We dissolve to M-City at night where a CO is checking on the inmates, shining a torch into Boost Mally's pod to check that he's asleep, which he appears to be. The guard heads off to check on some other inmates, which is Boost Mally's cue to drop from his bunk and remove something from under his pillow. He moves the bed frame slightly and gets down on his belly underneath the bed, where he then removes a floor tile where we see that he is once again digging a new hole as the scene closes. 
So again, Rebido's segment breaking things up a little bit here, but I wasn't as down on this as I have been some of the other ones from recent episodes. The scene of him being taken away to Benchley was a real kick in the gut though, especially as he called out for his mum. That actually really got to me, because sometimes it's easy to forget that the inmates have left an entire world behind when they come to us. A world which not only consists of their own lives, but those of their families too. There's a pretty obvious plot hole here too, with how Busmalis has been placed in the ground floor pod upon his return to M-City, allowing him to dig once again. Granted, he and Ribido got away with Tunnel 1, which they dug in MC, but there seems to have been very little repercussions for Boost Malice having escaped through Tunnel 2, and I don't think there's even been any mention of new charges brought against Boost Malice. Having carried out one successful escape already, why would you put him in a position where he could potentially do it again? Surely the first act in avoiding Boost Malice doing this again is to put him in a pod on the top floor. Feared upon Augustus in his box, detailing about how the Census Bureau counts prisoners just like they do everyone else, but that the Bureau considers them residents of the town wherever the prison may be, information which is then used by the state to determine where financial aid goes, and how some town upstate, Augustus describing them as rinky-dink, gets a wad of money while the inner cities get zippity-doodah, something which contributes towards an increased crime rate to begin with, and finishes off by describing the Census as senseless. There's a counter in the bottom corner which is constantly increasing as Augustus delivers this monologue, maxing out on the newly discovered number Ozbillion, essentially allowing for every person on the planet to be considered an inmate. In M-City, Poet makes his way into one of the classrooms where the three trustees, along with new partner Supreme, are playing cards. Chucky says that Adebisi has a bug up his ass about Mobe, with Adebisi saying that he doesn't like him but Morales defends Mobe saying that he's filled his quota and brought them five new customers, so doesn't see what the issue is. Adebisi asks who those customers are though, and that Leroy and Mondo gave them the names of their new customers, but Mobe apparently only knows his by face, something which Adebisi is suspicious of. Supreme asks Poet if he's ever actually seen Mobe's cell, Poet admitting that he hasn't, as Chucky says, we got the cash, who cares, proving himself to be ever the businessman. Supreme raises the point about how Mobe could be undercover, but Chucky dismisses that on account of how much shit Mobe shoves up his nose. Adebisi tells Poet that the next time Mobe sells, he wants him to be right by his side to see it happen. Cut to Leo's office, where Mobe is relaying the information to Leo, having met with Poet in the meantime, Mobe pointing out that he's fucked either way because he legally can't sell to anyone. Leo, though, has a plan and tells Mobe to call his lieutenant and to have him bring in someone else so that Mobe can sell to him, meaning that no one gets hurt. Mobe calls that a genius idea, Leo not appearing as enthusiastic because if he was such a genius, then surely he'd be able to settle on one of the campaign posters that he's looking at. Quite the leap of logic here, as surely the selling of drugs is the illegal part, whether Mobe sells to an inmate or a cop or whatever, which does go to show how much of a hole the show has dug for itself with this storyline, if someone sells to Mobe, that's illegal, and the whole reason that he's there to begin with. If Mobe sells to someone else, that's illegal, hence why Mobe has been using his own money to cover his tracks and to sell to his mystery buyers. But cop selling to cop is apparently fine, because it gets Mobe out of a jam. It's such a cop-out, no pun intended, and makes no sense whatsoever. And also, what the hell is Leo thinking? This undercover operation is going so well that the cop has found himself between a rock and a hard place, and could well die because of it. I know what this needs. 
more undercover cops. I don't know if you can even use this as an example of Leo looking the other way and being somewhat corrupt. It purely seems to be a way of getting themselves out of the corner that they've backed themselves in. Cut to the kitchen where Mo Bay, in full view of not only Poet, but absolutely everybody, quote-unquote sells his drugs to an inmate as Poet, passing by with the lunch trays while also chomping on a biscuit, gives the signal to Adebisi that the job is done. Chucky saying, see, told you Mo Bay was okay, as the two of them go their separate ways. Cut to Augustus being interviewed by Detective Magori regarding the death of Bruno, which Augustus describes as being a freak accident. But Magori thinks that Bruno was pushed, as surprise, surprise, we see the flashback of Bruno plummeting to his death one more time, which I think takes us to a grand total of three so far this series for flashbacks on this. Magori says that she's there to find out who murdered Bruno and asks Augustus if he has any suggestions, but Augustus is uncooperative, Magori asking whether or not he saw Bruno have any confrontations with anyone, or whether he had any with Bruno himself, Augustus denying any knowledge on both questions. Magori is heard different though, although she doesn't reveal her source, as Augustus tells her that she can keep excavating, but she'll never find any secrets buried in his brain, as Leo appears outside the room. Terminator Magori tells Augustus that she'll be back, as she heads outside to consult with Leo, saying that Augustus knows something, but that she's going to see what percolates and let him sit for a while, which is a poor choice of phrasing. Augustus returns to M-City later in the day and enters his pod where Mobe is reading. When Mobe asks where Augustus has been, Augustus says that he's been avoiding questions from a homicide detective, Mobe telling him to relax and that she doesn't know anything. Augustus calls Mobe on having no guilt about what happened to Bruno, and says that they are both the same, that being that they have both killed cops, except that Augustus wishes every single day that he could take back what he did. Mobet tries to justify what happened by describing Bruno as being a monster, with Augustus saying that it takes a monster to kill a monster as the scene closes. I've got mixed feelings on how this storyline has progressed. On the one hand, Mobe looks like a complete idiot for not going to Leo and saying, Mate, I need out of here, I'm going to end up getting killed while on the other hand it works really well in showing that Leo's mind is elsewhere, as illustrated in that scene of him picking out a poster and showing that Oz has become similar to the Wild West where anything goes, not helped at all by Quern's running M-City in the fashion that he is. We've had it beaten into us about how Mobe can't do this or he can't do that because he's a cop, but the get-out of Mobe being able to sell drugs to another cop and it all just being fine and dandy was either an incredible leap of logic, which wouldn't be a first for the show, or it's another example of Leo saying, look, we'll just do it this once and let me sort it out, everything will be fine. All the while ignoring the bigger issues at the prison and focusing more on his campaign. A campaign which he was sort of pressured into being involved in to begin with. So why is it commanding so much of his attention? Fade up on a refinishing up at the phones. Somewhere that we saw a lot of early on in the show's run, but have barely seen for quite some time now. His exit is blocked by Supreme, as well as a number of his henchmen, Mondo even threatening Arif with a razor blade. Supreme tells Arif that he knows about him going to Adebisi and asking him to kill him, and asks is that any way for a brother to act towards another. He says that he could kill Arif right there and then, but Arif tells him that he won't because it'll affect Adebisi's deal with Quans regarding the M-City violence, and tells Supreme to move, and that was a good job of reinforcing Adebisi as being the true leader in M-City. Supreme tells Arif to watch his back and that he wouldn't want to get hit with something falling from the sky 
as he finally allows Arif to exit the room, Arif having to force his way past a number of black inmates. Cut to the holding area, where Menio leads off a number of new inmates who all look as though they're heading to Unit B, as we track across to Saeed and Arif working the supply desk. Saeed senses that Arif wants to ask him something, and they head towards the rear to speak privately. Arif refers to Saeed as his imam, something which Saeed tries to reject, and says that he has committed a great sin, disgracing himself as well as their faith, and that it has placed them all in danger. He asks Saeed to lead them once again, and tells him to stop hiding not only from who he is, but from who God wants him to be, although Saeed doesn't seem open to the idea at first. Back in M-City, the inmates are watching Miss Sally when Officer Johnson calls for their attention, and he announces that Kiki, Tony Masters and Fiona are all being transferred to Unit B. Keller mentions to Chucky about more white guys leaving M-City, as Chucky makes a horrifically outdated comment about them not being guys, and we get a shot of Keller, Chucky and Ryan framed in such a way that shows them as the minority in the unit now, as we then cut to the crime flashback of Mondo Brown which sees him working in a butcher's freezer, manoeuvring what is definitely a human torso. And he introduces himself as Augustus tells us that Mondo has been convicted of murder in first degree, and sentenced to 27 years, up for parole in 11. We met Raymond Brown, aka Mondo, back in episode 5 of this series, and he is played by Gano Grills. Born in Staten Island, New York, Gano formed a friendship with Wu-Tang Clan's RZA in the 1980s, after going to school with RZA's brother, King. After attempting to forge a career in rap as a member of RZA's short-lived group, The Five Deadly Venoms, Gano rose to fame as a graffiti artist, becoming immortalised on RZA's track Holocaust Silkworm, from his 1998 album Bobby Digital in Stereo. While Gano is credited for creating logos for Method Man, who we'll meet in Series 4B, as well as logos for Wu-Tang Clan's Wu-Wear clothing brand, he is also often erroneously credited as creating the famous Wu-Tang Clan W logo a myth which has been debunked by Gano himself. Making his acting debut in 1995, appearing in the second season of New York Undercover, Gano also appeared in music videos for Mike and Double G, and made his film acting debut in 1996, appearing as a gang member in Mugshot. In 1998, Gano and his snakeskin print shirt appeared in the video for Face Off by Jay-Z featuring Source Money, while in 1999 he appeared in the films Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and In Too Deep. In 2000, Gano would earn credits on TV for appearances in The Sopranos, where he played Carjacker Antonio, as well as Now and Again and Third Watch, before appearing here on Oz. Over in M-City, Mondo is having something of a disagreement with Don, which escalates when Mondo punches Don in the face after Don utters the N-word. Chucky gets involved as CEOs try to settle things down. Mondo tells Chucky that he's ready to throw down right now, but Chucky says that he's a patient man as Officer Johnson orders for Don to be taken to the hall. Sticking up for his fellow gang member, Chucky says that Don didn't do anything wrong, Officer Johnson saying that he provoked Mondo by calling him the N-word, which if we're being honest, he's not wrong about. Chucky takes a page out of McManus' playbook, saying that that's bullshit, as Johnson tells him to back away. Chucky only makes matters worse by saying, fuck all you guys, which prompts Johnson to whack him in the stomach with his nightstick allowing for the black inmates to taunt Chucky as he's escorted away, Johnson telling them all to break it up as we see Morales watching on with his crew as Saeed watches proceedings from the safety of his pod. Cut to Adebisi's pod where we finally get to see behind the curtain where it's party central in there, 
He's got traditional African prints and throws all over the place. They've gone and got themselves a bottle of similar to, but legally distinct from Jack Daniels. There's some fruit on the table, and there is copious amounts of drugs being taken too. All the while, Vincent is filming everything with a handycam. Something which will have set him back a decent amount of money back in those days. I remember buying something like that for a holiday to China in 2006, and I think it set me back over £200, which would have been about $380 at the time. Me just mentioning Jack Daniels there, that's not an endorsement or an ad or me trying to hit them up for free whiskey or anything like that. I don't want any of that because Jack Daniels is what I imagine cat piss to taste like. It's a whiskey for people who don't know anything about whiskey. There's also an unnamed dancer in here entertaining Adebisi with some suggestive banana eating, as well as kissing Adebisi's feet. Morales and Chucky head up to the pod and knock on the window. But there's no answer, as obviously everybody in there is having a ruddy good time. Morales gives Chucky a look of, what the fuck is this? And knocks again, but a bit more firmly. And Cockney geezer Adabizi heads out and tells them, hello boys, in what is something closer to Adabizi's real voice. Sensing that he and Chucky are being forced out of their deal, Morales says to Adabizi that they're meant to be partners, and that it's been ten days since they've seen any sort of money come in from the drugs and ask whether or not Adebisi is pocketing the profits for himself. Adebisi says that profits are aplenty, but there has been a change to the organisation, and that he doesn't need them anymore. Adebisi looks to head back into his party den, but Morales holds the door, asking if Adebisi is looking to start a war. But Adebisi tells him to take a look around, and that all the faces match his, and that there ain't going to be no war, and implies that Chucky and Morales are about to head off to Unit B with everybody else. A worried look in Morales asks when that's going to happen, as Johnson and another CO arrive right on time to take them away. Adebisi jokes to Chucky about how he's going to miss him and says to say hi to Schillinger for him, which was a really nice touch and was a good way of referencing the history of the inmates from prior to the show beginning. You'll remember that the whole Schillinger-Beecher storyline kicked off due to Beecher telling Schillinger that Adebisi stole his watch on his first day, with Schillinger saying that Adebisi tried the same with him. Whether that was true or not, who knows, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But there was a bit of history there, as we then had that moment of Schillinger telling Adebisi to back off and making it look like he was saving Beecher. Chucky and Morales are not the only ones heading the Unit B, as we also see that Chico and Vasquez from the Latinos are on the way out, as well as Mario from the Italians. There is another Italian inmate on his way out too, but he is an unnamed character. Quans addresses M-City about the transfers, and mentions that with Morales and Chucky now out of M-City, he is appointing Supreme and Poet as the replacement trustees, which gets applause from most of the black inmates, while the Muslims and everybody else are pushed out to the sidelines. Cut to the shower room where Saeed is having a shave as Adebisi enters, basking in his M-City regalness and saying that he told Saeed to join him, but he also says that Saeed never listens, and that is what's going to kill Saeed in the end. Saeed asks if a lack of listening is going to kill him, then what's going to kill Adebisi, singling out AIDS or an overdose in particular? Adebisi tells Saeed not to worry about him, but Saeed insists that he doesn't. He only worries about the people around Adebisi, breathing in the air that he poisons. Adebisi describes how he's turned M-City into a utopia, or a Shangri-La Sama, that being a remote, beautiful, imaginary place where life approaches perfection but Saeed disagrees, saying that Adebisi has turned M-City into an inferno. Adebisi says that they finally have all the power, but Saeed tells him that a bad system run by blacks is the same as a bad system run by whites. 
Adebisi asks how can it be bad and that we have everything we want, we have everything in our grasp, as Saeed says that Adebisi really thinks that he's recreated the world. Saeed places his hands on Adebisi's shoulders and even calls him Simon, and as I mentioned earlier on in his scene with Beecher, you know that when real names get busted out they mean business, and he says that this is all just an illusion and that the real power can only come from God. Adebisi tells Saeed that if he wanted to, he could crush him like a cockroach, but Saeed says that he won't because he is the only one that speaks the truth to him, Adebisi dismissing that as Saeed's truth, not his, as he removes his towel and places it on Saeed's shoulder before heading into the shower. Saeed wipes his face with a towel, bearing in mind that Adebisi just had that wrapped around his balls, as the scene closes with him leaving Adebisi to take his shower, which he does while still wearing his hat. Over in Unit B and taking a break from playing pool for once, we see Schillinger playing a game of backgammon with Jazz, which considering that Jazz has a very prominent Star of David tattoo indicating his Jewish faith, that opens up one hell of an ideological paradox. Chucky comes over, of course having taken the time to remove the sleeves from his Unit B jumpsuit, and says that Adebisi has turned M-City into a Zulu nation, as Jazz asks what are they supposed to do. Schillinger gives the most Schillinger answer possible and says that they should create their own country, getting up and heading to the office to talk with McManus, and I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn that this clip features some racist language and mentality from Schillinger. McManus, we gotta talk. Make an appointment with my secretary. This is serious. Yeah, I can tell. You've got that Schillinger scowl going. Your precious little dream. Your Emerald City is now a ghetto. You been there lately? Crap all over the floors, drugs everywhere, the lack of primary colors. Well, that unit is no longer my responsibility. Yeah, I got no problem with that. What we don't want is that new attitude over there to come wafting this way. They hear about what's going on, empowerment. They're gonna want the same thing here. And you're suggesting what? That we make Unit B all white? Yes. Get the fuck away from me. Hey, let the niggers have M-City. Fuck, let them have the whole goddamn prison as long as we're safe over here. Goodbye, Vern. Don't be a bigger fool than you've already been. Lock down! Lock the unit down! You'll see! You wish you'd listen to me, McManus! No! Cut to a staff meeting where Leo is detailing about how Oz is having a new electric perimeter fence being put in next week, something which will allow them to eliminate the Watchtower surveillance and save them countless man-hours. This is an interesting bit here, as at this point in time and with how the show was written with the threat of cancellation constantly lingering, it doesn't really serve a purpose, it's just a thing for Leo to be talking about in the meeting, but it will have a payoff in a future episode. Mamanis apologises for being late, which no one reacts to because he's always late to these things, and he says that M-City is a shithouse and mentions about there being garbage all over the place. Quan's cutting in, saying that you must be able to eat off of Unit B's flaws. Quan's tells Leo that Mamanas is obviously jealous of him, once again mentioning about there being virtually no violence since he came to Oz, and says that his system works. Mamanas asks at what price, and storms out of the meeting. Over at the holding area, Saeed spots McManus and tries to get his attention, but McManus ignores him and attempts to shoot off. 
He does eventually stop after Saeed raises his voice and heads over to talk with him. Saeed detailing that conditions in M City are continuing to deteriorate, and that something has to be done about Adebisi, once again reinforcing Adebisi's king of the unit status. But Manas asks why is Saeed coming to him and tells Saeed to speak to Quern's. Saeed saying that he has and all that Quern's does is turn a blind eye so long as order is maintained. Mamanus then suggests that Saeed go and talk to Leo, but Saeed says that he's tried that too and that Leo seems indifferent, perhaps even distracted by his election campaign, and says that it's up to the two of them to stop Adebisi, the concept of a McManus-Saeed tag team seemingly a little confusing to McManus. Saeed thinks that in order to shut down Adebisi, they need to eliminate Querns. Mamanus asking whether or not Saeed has a plan, which apparently he does. It was in this scene as well where I got to thinking that McManus looks really weird wearing jeans. I'm sure he's worn jeans on the show in the past, but there's something really noticeable about how strange it looks on him here. Saeed heads back to M-City where he, with a reef by his side, approaches Adebisi, who sat enjoying a can of Pepsi which Vincent is holding in a don't show the logo otherwise we have to pay for it fashion. Now if Pepsi want to send me anything in exchange for some free advertising, that I'm totally fine with. Saeed says that he was wrong about Adebisi, and that he sees now that Adebisi has transformed M-City into a paradise, even echoing Adebisi by calling it a utopia. He announces to everyone in M-City that he wants to join Adebisi's cause, serving him in whatever way Adebisi chooses, again making it very clear that Adebisi is the leader in the unit. Adebisi gets to his feet and asks if Saeed is serious, Saeed telling him yes, Zadabizi grasps Saeed's beads and tells him to swear in the name of Allah. After a momentary hesitation, Saeed does so swear, as Adabizi says that he has waited for this moment, and that now he can raise Saeed as his equal, and that together, there's nothing they can't do. As Adabizi begins to chant the word nothing, which gathers momentum as the other inmates join in, he adjusts Saeed's kufi to sit on the side of his head, mirroring the way that Adabizi wears his hat in an amazing piece of symbolism. The inmates continue to chant as Arif and eventually Saeed join in too, as superstar DJ Adebisi stands up on a chair and says, let me see your hands up. Keller and Ryan describe the new alliance as the end of the fucking universe, as the scene closes with Adebisi and Saeed joining fists, solidifying their newfound unity. Really good long-term storytelling with this one, which I'll come back to in my wrap-up of the episode. But before we get to that though, we've got one more segment crammed into the episode right at the end here. Augustus narrates about how the census numbers are used to determine election districts, and that a senator can count the inmates as his constituents, thus increasing his political influence. However, those same inmates, many of whom are people of colour, are not allowed to vote, something that we've covered in a previous episode, and that as a result the senator has no allegiance to them but that he benefits from voting for laws to keep them incarcerated for longer, which ultimately benefits the town. All of this plays out to Devlin shaking hands with inmates, as well as a flashback to Leo's meeting with Clayton, where he said that somebody must stop Devlin, as we cut back to Leo meeting with Clayton's mum Lenore, our first time seeing her since Series 3, Episode 7. She apologises for suddenly stopping by, and tells Leo that she's worried about Clayton, describing about how she barely even knows her own son anymore, mentioning the gun incident as well as the African dress, and she then pulls out one of Devlin's campaign posters from her bag, which shows some crudely photoshopped targets on Devlin's head, and says that she found it in Clayton's room, meaning that Clayton apparently still lives with his mother. 
Leo asks where Clayton is now, but Lenore doesn't know and says that he hasn't been home in days. Leo telling her to call him as soon as he does, and to try and not worry in the meantime. Flash cut to Devlin delivering a press conference talking about the new stab-proof vests that are being issued to COs across the state, something which has been referenced previously on the show in one of the staff meetings. Devlin tells the press that the safety of COs is paramount to him as Leo watches on in the background, when from the side entrance arrives Clayson dressed as Travis Bickle, complete with Mohawk and M65 field jacket. Leo's spidey sense kicks in as he turns his head towards the back of the room, as Clayton yells, FUCK YOU, in slow motion, and shoots Devlin in the back as well as catching a CO with a bullet to the knee. Leo tackles Clayton to the ground before turning his attention back to Devlin, as the press snap away getting as many pictures as they can. Leo calls for help and declares that the governor is down, as a camera flash freezes the shot still to close the episode. These new stab-proof vests, the correctional officers here and across the state will have the very best protection. Their safety is paramount to me. These are the men and women who keep the forces of darkness at bay. Those who say no more prisons, well, I say no more crime. Fuck you! So there you go, Series 4, Episode 7, A Town Without Pity. The second half of this episode was better than the first, which featured the far too sudden departure of Nikolai. That rivalry had been built up very well over the course of this series, but outside circumstances meant that the story had to be brought to a conclusion quicker than what might have been planned. As a result, the seemingly random addition of Claire to the mix just seemed to cut the legs out from under it, giving the whole thing a very unsatisfying payoff. The show's main two plotlines, though, which saw Beecher making a critical error when at his most desperate, as well as the ongoing storyline of racial tension with NM City, they continue to deliver, the second one especially. Upon his return from the psych ward at the start of Series 3, Adebisi was seen as a bit of a joke in the eyes of many, particularly Napper. Of course, we saw that he was a little more with it than he let on, formulating a plan to eliminate Napper from M City as well as seize control of the homeboys back from Kenny, and he's been hatching this plot ever since to become the king of M-City, something which he has referenced himself when talking to Saeed, saying first I was king, then I was loony, now I'm king again. I mentioned at the time that he wasn't quite there at that time, but he certainly is now, illustrated not only by Quern's looking the other way with regards to his antics and affording Adebisi certain privileges, shall we say, but also from Arif mentioning to Supreme about how killing him would jeopardise Adebisi's deal with Quans, as well as part of the conversation between Saeed and Mamanis, and finally from Saeed saying that he will serve Adebisi. The storyline of Adebisi using the very real problem of racial tensions to gain his position of power has been expertly executed. Quans mentioned earlier about the violence being down by over 90% since he came to Oz, something which has been achieved essentially by separating the races, 
which presents the very difficult question about whether or not implementing segregation is the way to go. Personally, I would say no to that. I don't think that segregation has a place in civilised society. The only way that you're ever going to bring about change is through acceptance, balance and talking with each other. Which was backed up by Saeed, saying that a bad system run by blacks is the same as a bad system run by whites. But Oz is far from a civilised society, and to put ourselves in Leo's shoes for a second, on the surface of things, violence is down because Oz is being split into what is essentially becoming the black unit and the white unit. An idea that, when said out loud, seems absolutely ridiculous, as seen in the scene between McManus and Schillinger. But on the flip side of that, if doing that is what's getting results and keeps violence down and limits the numbers of deaths and murders, and as Quartz mentions in the staff meeting about it showing that his system works, then Leo can feel justified in allowing it even if not everyone is going to agree with it. While it may be difficult to talk about, it's a very important topic to talk about and break down. The addition of Rebido's brain tumour came a little out of left field, but was balanced out by hitting us right in the fields with him calling out for his mother. And while Mobay's undercover operation continued to chug along the tracks, it took a bit of a backseat to proceedings and only gave us one Bruno dying flashback. I still think bringing in another undercover cop in an effort to cover for Mobay's drug dealing, something which if it happens at any other time is definitely illegal, was plastering over a pretty big hole in the logic. The coming together of Adebisi and Saeed, however, was a great scene. That angling of Saeed's kufi to be like Adebisi's hat? Mwah! And I kind of feel as though the episode should have ended with Ryan and Keller talking about their new union being the end of the universe, fading to black on the shot of Saeed and Adebisi bumping fists. Their coming together having finally occurred after a number of failed attempts from Adebisi going all the way back to the previous series, as well as their first confrontation at the conclusion of series one. Instead of that though, the final scene with Clayton's attempted assassination of Devlin, which you can't even call a homage to Taxi Driver, it's just the scene from Taxi Driver, that felt a little tacked on, almost as though it was added very late in the writing process. Had it been Leo that got shot, then maybe that could have worked, but why would we care if Devlin lives or dies? He's been an utter arsehole from when he first appeared on the show. And I'd say that the cliffhanger of his life hanging in the balance took something away from the episode. But if you don't put it here, then where do you put it? You can't end this part of the series with it, because as we'll discuss next episode, there are much bigger things set to occur than what we got to close this episode out. It's not a bad episode by any means, everything is nicely poised for what is sure to be an epic finale to this block of episodes. But I just can't get away from thinking that closing on that image of a united Saeed and Anabizi was the way to go. Get the fuck out of my office. Four deleted scenes to talk about for this episode, the first of which sees Ray asking Pete for advice relating to breaking his code of silence with regards to what he learned from Keller's confession. Apparently this is something that they've had many conversations about before, Ray describing it as the confidentiality problem. It's essentially an explanation of the code of canon law that I discussed in the last episode. Pete asks Ray if he's talking about a particular crime, but Ray says it's more to do with the criminal. Pete asks if he's referring to Keller, with Ray giving out a minuscule laugh asking how did she guess, with Pete describing it as instinct. It cuts to Ray removing a poster from the board in the classroom, declaring that a rubber is a friend in your pocket, the inmates having apparently had some sex education training, with the two bullet points reading, abstinence, don't do it, and practice safe sex. Keller enters, but he's pretty blunt about having been summoned by Ray, 
as Ray mentions about Keller becoming angry after he refused to absolve him. Keller asks if Ray has changed his mind, but Ray says that while he does want to grant God's forgiveness, Keller has to meet him halfway. Keller refuses to go to the cops, saying that if he does then Ray will have a front seat at his execution, and that he'll be burning in hell a shitload sooner than he should be, and that quite frankly that deal sucks. Ray, however, says that if Keller confesses to the cops, then he won't burn, Keller asking whether or not Ray can guarantee him that, with Ray telling him yes. Keller says that he's glad that Ray is so sure of himself, but if he's wrong, then it's Keller's dick roasting on a spit for all eternity, and he leaves the room telling Ray no thanks, Ray looking pissed off at having not got through to him. Next two scenes see Schillinger and Robson sorting through the mail when Schillinger comes across a postcard. He describes it as a kick in the head and tells Robson that it's addressed to El Cid, Robson saying in no uncertain terms that El Cid has been dead for a couple of weeks now. Schillinger, however, points out that the person who sent it doesn't know that, though, and reveals Miguel as the sender. Cut to Leo's office, where Ray is sitting down as Leo reads the contents of the postcard, which reads, Dear Raul, ha ha ha, love Miguel. Leo also doing a great job of covering up Oz's address, although we've spoken before about that on the podcast. The postcard depicts the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is close to 400 miles away from New York City, as Schillinger says to Leo that he figured he would want to see it straight away. Leo describes Miguel as an idiot, saying that if you've escaped, you keep going. You don't send a postcard letting people know where you are. But Ray says that Miguel is probably long gone from Pittsburgh by now. Despite that, Leo decides to follow up on it and asks Mobe to get Taylor on the phone as the scene closes. Watching these back, it does seem a little strange that they didn't follow up on Keller confessing to Ray in the previous episode, which isn't unusual for the show. Sometimes it does take a couple of episodes for a storyline to come back around. But with these scenes not really progressing anything, I can see why they were cut. I'd definitely say there was a case to include the scenes with Miguel's postcard, though. The two of them run at just over a minute combined and wouldn't have taken away from anything that was left in. And it's a good way of keeping Miguel's name on the show, even if his escape was intended to be his exit originally, but more on that another time. With a death toll of three for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Nikolai Stanislavski, Eli Zabitz, and Hank Schillinger, played by Philip Kasnoff, David Johansson, and Andrew Barshalon, respectively. As I mentioned earlier, Philip's departure from the show felt premature, but had been necessitated due to Philip accepting the role of Chief of Staff Dr. Robert Jackson on Strong Medicine, which had began airing in June of 2000 on Lifetime. In addition to appearing for a total of 108 episodes between 2000 and 2006 across the show's six-season run, Philip would also make his directorial debut in 2003 during the show's third season, and go on to direct a total of eight episodes of the show overall. In addition to his run on Strong Medicine, Philip also appeared on TV in Law and Order Special Victims Unit in 2001, as well as becoming the latest Oz actor to appear on Frasier, appearing as Dr. Bernard Gaston in the show's ninth season, and currently sitting at the number 10 spot on the Oz actors to appear on Frasier list. Philip would return to the director's chair in 2005 to direct two episodes of Monk for the USA Network during the show's fourth season. Following the conclusion of Strong Medicine, Philip would appear in guest-starring roles on TV in Numbers and Without a Trace in 2006, while in 2009 he would land a recurring role on Fox's Dollhouse, appearing as Clive Ambrose for three episodes. In addition to his TV work, 
which saw Philip rack up appearances on shows such as Criminal Minds, NCIS, CSI and Grey's Anatomy between 2010 and 2012, Philip has also appeared in movies including 2010's Mineville, where he also gained an associate producer credit, as well as Ted 2 and Sight Unseen in 2015. With credits on TV for Homeland and Chicago PD, as well as the film The Post in 2017, Philip returned to film in 2018 for the film Garrow, where he appeared as Mr. Monroe, as well as earning credits as a co-producer and contributing writer. Philip would reunite with Lee Targerson in 2019 during the first season of Showtime's City on a Hill, appearing in the episode There Are No Fucking Sides, an episode which also featured an appearance by Catherine Irby. At the time of recording, Philip's latest credits include the 2020 short film Deceased Ones, while in 2021 he is credited on TV for an appearance on All Rise, as well as appearing in the Netflix drama Hit and Run. Following his recurring role as Eli Zabitz, David Johansson would appear on TV in 2001 in a guest starring role on Deadline, as well as the 2002 film God Is On Their Side, playing the role of God, and for some reason credited under his Buster Poindexter alter ego. Also in 2002, David released the second David Johansson and the Harry Smiths album, Shaker, which was released through Chesky Records. The album is currently David's final album as a solo artist, following the reunion of the classic lineup of New York Dolls in 2004, which saw the band play at the Meltdown Festival in London, England in June of that year, an appearance that was organised by former frontman of the Smiths and former head of the New York Dolls UK fan club, Morrissey. The success of the reunion saw the release of the live album, Morrissey Presents, The Return of the New York Dolls, live from the Royal Festival Hall, with the group releasing a new studio album in 2006, entitled One Day It Will Please Us To Remember Even This through Roadrunner Records. At the time of recording, the band have since released two further studio albums, 2006's Cause I Said So and Dancing Backwards in High Heels in 2011, while David has also made guest appearances on TV shows such as Teen Titans and Centaur World, as well as the films Glass Chin in 2014 and 2019's Above the Shadows. With Hank Schillinger having been murdered off-screen by the Mafia, Andrew Barcelon only made one more acting appearance following his run on Oz, appearing in the film Second Born in 2003. Since then, Andrew has continued to work behind the camera, working in the sound department on the 2008 film Honey, We Shouldn't Be Here, as well as earning his first producer credit in 2009 for the film You Won't Miss Me. That same year, Andrew also earned his first directing credit for the documentary Alien Artists. Andrew is perhaps best known for his involvement with The Eric Andre Show between 2012 and 2016, where he earned writing credits for 30 episodes as well as contributing on a number of others, and also worked as the show's executive producer and director for over 40 episodes. Also in 2016, Andrew worked as a supervising producer on MTV's Wonderland, while in 2019 he directed the short film The Do It Update, where he also served as executive producer. Andrew's most recent projects include 2020's The Adventures of Wit, which he wrote along with his sister Josette as well as directed, while at the time of recording his most recent credit is listed as 2021's Bad Trip, where he is credited as coming up with a story, and which saw Andrew reunite with the film's star Eric Andre. The Oz One and Dunn Club also gained itself a new member in Oliver Solomon, who appeared briefly as a paramedic. Oliver has continued to act mostly in minor roles on TV, with credits for shows such as Third Watch, Person of Interest and Downtown Girls, as well as appearing across the Law & Order franchise in a number of roles, with his most recent acting credit coming in 2021 for the Showtime comedy Flatbush Misdemeanors. 
My episode MVP can only realistically go to one person, and that is Kareem Saeed. While he may have been something of a special counsel for the Muslims under Ravi's leadership, he never once tried to seize the position back for himself, despite the Muslims' position becoming somewhat weaker as the series has progressed. Adebisi has tried to recruit Saeed on a number of occasions now, clearly seeing more value in him than he does Arif, and even Arif has gone to Saeed to ask him to lead the Muslims once again. As M-City continues to resemble a Blacks-only unit and Adebisi gains more and more power, at this point in time Saeed seems to be the only person willing to do anything to try and stop him, and after meeting with McManus to discuss his plan, has essentially gone into the lion's den to try and bring Adebisi down from within. While I love the imagery in the scene of Saeed and Adebisi coming together, it's clear what Saeed's intentions are going forward, and he seems to be the only one willing to put himself in that position. Keller has a toughness to him while Ryan has cunning, but neither man at this stage has stepped up to make a move against Adebisi, both of them well aware that they are in the minority now in MC. Saeed, however, finds himself in a position of being able to use not only his skin tone, but Adebisi's desire to form a partnership to his advantage, something which still presents a number of risks to Saeed should things go wrong. But with no one else stepping forward, it's down to him to do it himself. So for those reasons, Saeed wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, CastBox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the show by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on the finale to this block of episodes of Inside Oz, Groucho Marx will be asking the questions as we play Series 4, Episode 8, You Bet Your Life, where Leo deals with the fallout of the shooting of Devlin, Mobe makes a decision which will affect the drug trade investigation, Moses has had enough of Mark Miles, and the biggest moment of the show so far occurs when Saeed and Adebisi become podmates, the ramifications of which will change Oz forever. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, I'm hoping to have got this out in time for Christmas, so if I have, make sure you have a good one, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Prisoner number 00356B, Raymond Brown. A.K.A. Mondo Brown. Convicted April 10th, 2000. Losing my mind. Okay, let's do it. We're still running. Let's go right away. Zero zero. Zero zero. What is it? Zero zero B. I'm sorry. All right.